0: The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond, Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L I A R D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and Curse of Oak Island and many other things, Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. Okay, welcome to tonight's Mauer Report. I'm excited to have everybody here. Before we begin, I've got to remind everybody that tonight's show is brought to you by well, this is no fun, but it's housekeeping. The malware Report on Substack because there's all kinds of great Well, 11 years worth of archives, so I had to put them up somewhere so you can go over there and join that membership. So com and get all those past, well, most of those past archives out there. Some of them are still free. But tonight we're joined by John Ziegler of FramingPaterno.com. There's a whole bunch of other things we could get into, books and documentaries, but we're just going to we're just going to stay to the um, this. It this interests me to no end, John. How are you doing tonight? First and foremost, before I get too far into this,
1: I'm okay. Thanks for having me.
0: So, John, with, let's lay a little backstory out there for the listener who may be wildly unaware of what happened there.
1: Well. Um... You know, you, all you've referenced is is the website Framing Paterno. Um, this is uh, the website that is the home of an epic investigation that resulted in a absolutely uh, phenomenal podcast called With the Benefit of Hindsight, which is the true, real story, the true crime-that-didn't-happen story of the entire Penn State Joe Paterno-Jerry Sandusky scandal, which rocked the world, Back in 2011, 2012, and which I have investigated for pretty much most of the time since then, and uh, the podcast, with the benefit of hindsight, is is really extraordinary on so many different levels. But it, it will blow your mind if you if you care about the truth involving one of the biggest stories of the of the century, certainly one of the biggest sports stories of the century, and how the news media can completely blow narratives especially in a panic. And and for those who are of my political mindset, they'll see an awful lot of parallels to what happened over the last three years with regard to the COVID panic, because the COVID panic and the Sandusky Paterno panic were very, very similar. The difference being the COVID virus was real. The Penn State scandal was not.
0: So well, let's get into the timeline here. Because I remember seeing the, the 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 first bubble of the story and being like, what in the hell is going on? So take me back to those days. What were you thinking then before you started to get in deep here? I mean, you're in deep now.
1: (laughs) I've I've been, I've been in deep for a very, very long time. Um, Far deeper than I ever expected or anticipated or wanted to be, or or whether or or far deeper than my wife ever wanted me to be. That's for sure. Um, Going back to November, 2011, the story that we were told and I was just a documentary filmmaker Whose previous two films had, had debuted on in rather, you know, significant fashions. The, the last one had debuted in, in a live interview with Matt Lauer on the Today Show about the 2008 presidential election called Media Malpractice. And, um, I was watching like everybody else. I was in Southern California and the story we were being told was that, uh, Jerry Sandusky, former assistant coach at Penn State had been uh, arrested for numerous counts of child sex abuse and that the primary witness in the case, a guy by the name of Mike McQuery, who was at the time a, a, an assistant football coach at Penn State, had about 10 years prior to this arrest witnessed Jerry Sandusky raping a, what was thought to be 10-year-old boy in a Penn State shower. He then told Joe Paterno about it the next morning. Joe Paterno passed that information up the Penn State food chain. Penn State basically did nothing. Jerry Sandusky was allowed to continue molesting, assaulting, abusing young boys for many more years until finally the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office was able to have enough evidence to arrest him and, and put him on trial. And um, I had no dog in this hunt. I, I was not a Penn State fan growing up. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and Bucks County, but I was actually a Notre Dame football fan. So I, I, you know, I had respect for Joe Paterno, but I had no love for Penn State. But the story, specifically the McQuery story, made absolutely no sense to me, none. And um, I was somebody who had a pretty unique background, having covered college and pro football as a member of the media, high school football. I coached high school football in two different states. I've written a book about a high school football team in Ohio. Um, and, and so I understood the culture of, of football and, and Pennsylvania and Penn State and, and also just the basics of human behavior. And that story, the McQuarrie story, as I, as I outlined it, just made no sense at all. And um, that was where I began. I, I really began this from the standpoint of was Joe Paterno Railroad, because people forget, within just a couple of days of this story breaking nationally – uh, Joe Paterno was unceremoniously fired just before what was supposed to be his last home game about a week after he had become the winningest coach in the history of college football. And um, and the president of the university, Graham Spanier, had effectively been fired and two other administrators had, had been indicted. And so this was a, um, you know, a horrendous story, but I was looking at it from the perspective of, was Joe Paterno specifically railroaded? And it, in the larger picture, was Penn State railroaded for having supposedly covered this up the cover-up also never made any sense to me um, but mostly i was looking at paterno and then as i got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the story and interviewed jerry Sandusky not once but twice in prison for a total of about six hours including one of those interviews with his wife Dottie. and then i went on the today show a second time i went on twice once after the first interview and again, after the second interview, this time with Dottie herself, both with Matt Lauer on the Today Show, I I came to the conclusion that, as as absolutely insane as it sounds to the person who has not followed this, that this entire story is wrong, that Jerry Zendosky, believe it or not, is not just uh, innocent. He's clearly innocent. And anybody that has looked at the facts of this case objectively, and there have been many, not Nobody's been about as outspoken as I have been, although some people have been close. But there have been many very credible people who have <laughs> looked at the fact, facts in this case, and they have come to the same conclusion I have, that this case is an absolute uh, uh, abomination of, of injustice, that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. And that it's not even close. That's the most amazing part of this. It's not even close, no matter how many people – Are are, or have been duped into buying this dark fairy tale. It doesn't matter how insane that sounds to people who have not followed this case, it's not close. I I lose no sleep in taking this position at all. I'm positive I'm right. I'm also positive it's never going to get fixed because the world we live in just doesn't allow for it, especially with the media environment the way that it is. But this isn't this case is a it should be looked at for decades and decades to come because it really was the Salem witch trial in, in a modern uh, environment. And and when we have a panic, especially with modern media, uh, look out. Once the media becomes invested in the narrative, there's no going back. And this case proves that in spades.
0: So my thought was, now this is going to be probably a little different twist for you, but I think you're going to love this. Okay. <laughs> uh, next few weeks I'm going to talk AI and how things are going to get out of control of it. But this case... I remember all the buzz on social media about all this. You were talking—you're talking about the mainstream media, but social media was a fire with that. I want to get into that a little bit because I think as the story—I mean, as AI develops, right—we're going to see more and more weird, random things because you can generate videos and all sorts of things now, and say, "Yeah, I was guilty of whatever," and won't even be the person. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, AI is a completely different subject, know, subject that I. But I also, I I'm, by the way, I'm also concerned about AI. Um, I think your better point with regard to the story is the power of social media, because in late 2011, Twitter, for instance, yeah, was just starting. was just starting to come of age, and let's be clear, Twitter is by basically like gasoline <laughs> on a on a panic narrative, right? Yeah. I mean. You you can we now live in a world where if a narrative is popular or outrageous or if whatever reason it makes people feel good or superior, uh, you know, we now look at tweets and retweets and and likes as as a measurement of truth. And these stories, you know, the, the, the downfall of a legend makes everybody feel good. Right. Because if Joe Paterno really wasn't the the guy that we were told that he was. Uh, this you know morally superior legendary figure who won more college football games than anybody else in the history of the sport and uh, but he was actually really a scumbag who was covering up for child sex abuse it makes everybody feel good and so these these stories caught fire incredibly easily and they did for years by the way this you know this wasn't just a couple of day situation this story was at the top of the headline. For years, and I, I've seen many situations where completely bogus, unsourced stories that facilitated this fairy tale narrative, as I call it, just caught wildfire on social media, specifically on Twitter, and in a way that you know it didn't matter that they weren't true because people now think, and the media now thinks, that popularity equals truth. I, I've had a major. USA Today columnist Christine Brennan, a former friend of mine who has written extensively about this story, tell me, and this is almost word for word what she told me, we used to be very close, she told me that she knew her Penn State coverage was good. <coughs> I knew it to be complete garbage, but she knew it to be good because it was popular. And that in her mind, that that was validation for how good her her commentary on Penn State was. And I that blew my mind because I'm even as cynical as i am i i wasn't cynical enough to think that that's what a usa today columnist that i was friends with at one point would would think uh, was the, the 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 currency the coin of the realm if you will the coin of the realm in the news media used to be truth now it's popularity and and this this story was very very popular even though it's you know you wouldn't think it would be because it's a, it's a gross story if it was true it's, it's sickening if it was true But, you know, for some reason, it made people feel good about themselves, better about themselves, superior. And I think there were also a lot of people that loved to see, you know, Penn State be brought down, Joe Paterno be brought down. The media loved the story. And it was never based on anything true or logical. It makes no sense. And, in fact, I strongly believe that the basics of the story are that in this panic – The good guys, the real good guys in this story, all got put, had black hats put on their heads by the media. And all the bad guys in this story had white hats put on their heads by the news media. And then everybody saw the story as black hats versus white hats, but it was upside down. It was reversed. The good guys were the bad guys. The bad guys were the good guys. And as I've said before, I'll keep saying it, it's not close and nobody will even debate me about this because they know they can't debate me i i have all the facts all the logic all the knowledge all the research uh, and the other side just that they just want to they don't want to have to confront the fact that their their narrative makes no sense and has nothing backing it up and that we bought into a myth we were duped in those early days and then we saw everything through the prism of that false narrative Going forward. And then once we found out that it wasn't really true, which, you know, the evidence for which is overwhelming, no one cares anymore because it, everyone thinks that the story is known. It's over. There's nothing else to, to see here. Uh, that, you know, Sandusky's in prison. Paterno is dead. The administrators have served their time in jail. Um, but you know, I, I can assure you that if you listen to my podcast with the benefit of hindsight and my co-host, Liz Abebe, a former TV sportscaster in Los Angeles, who ironically went to Pitt, which is Penn State's arch (laughs) arch rival, um, I think you will be almost anybody who has tried seriously to listen to our podcast, anyone who's given it a really significant effort to listen to, and it's a very long podcast. I would say our conversion rate has to be at least 90%, maybe 95% of people who go in going, this can't really be the true story, Right. And they come out, just as I'm telling you, completely convinced that I'm right and other people that agree with me are also right, that this was a miscarriage of justice. It did not happen and that it's very clear that it did not happen.
0: So let me ask you this question. Because if I recall, though, this, you know, is fuzzy at best, right? But I remember reading a tweet, something along the lines of Sandusky being indicted or whatever. And there was a gap like that was all we knew for a couple of days, like a day or two. And then this whole um what was his name? The, the the other assistant coach story popped out that Paterno knew and it just kind of went but there was like there was only like it seemed like the whole thing for the first week was all rumors and hearsay before it got well, actually
1: reported by anybody. Well you have a little bit of the timeline messed up, but it's funny that you that you have that impression because there's there's something to that basically, what happened here was that the story broke on a on a Friday night because the the woman who would end up winning the Pulitzer Prize in this case Sarah Gham who was a complete fraud and a, and a really a, a major reason why this this injustice happened and she's no longer in the news media business anymore even though she was a journalistic savant at twenty three and twenty four she she bombed out at CNN did absolutely nothing and now she's out of the business so that that to me is one of the many 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 data points to make you go wait a minute how does How's that possible? She broke broke the story of the century at twenty four, and now she's out of the business. Well, she broke the story uh, of the century because she was handed a a leak by the attorney general's office. Just happened to be in front of her computer on a Friday night when the in, the indictment, the presentment, the grand jury presentment was accidentally leaked for a few minutes, and she just happens to be there to pick it up. So the story breaks over that weekend, and it is my. Opinion over that weekend when Penn State was not playing, they had the an off weekend, which was a key part of this whole situation. It's my opinion that the attorney general's office was actually quite perturbed that the the story did not create national earthquakes or firestorms, whatever metaphor you want to use for the first couple of days, because no one outside of State College Pennsylvania remembered Jerry Sanderson. He was a very prominent assistant coach. Helped Penn State win two national championships. Given really direct credit for winning the nineteen eighty six national championship game against Miami when his defense intercepted Vinny Testaverde five times. But nationally, he was no longer a significant figure. Not as, I, I, and I think that the attorney general's office was like on Monday morning. Well, wait a minute, you know our whole our whole theory of the case is that we're going to create this nuclear explosion with this grand jury presentment. We're going to gin it up. We're going to put the word rape in there when that's not what Mike McQuarrie said. And what's going to happen is we're going to get a whole bunch of new accusers because the accusers we have really aren't very good. (laughs) They're really pretty crappy, but we've been convinced that Sandusky is guilty. So if he's guilty, he must have dozens and dozens of victims, right? So if we can just create enough of an explosion These victims are going to come out of the woodwork, and then we will have an airtight case, and we will be able to put this monster behind bars. That's my assessment of what happened here. And for the first couple of days, it didn't happen. So then they poured. They decided, okay, we we ignited this nuclear bomb, and it didn't really go off, so we're going to try to reignite this. And the second time they reignited it, they had the the state police commissioner – Say at a press conference that Joe Paterno had not done his moral duty in the way that he handled this complaint. And oh my gosh, at that point, you know, on that Monday, ESPN, which had nothing else going on that week because the NBA was on strike and baseball had just finished and college football, pro football were in a lull and and college basketball hadn't started yet. No one cares about hockey at this point. This was a very, very slow week for November sports and they just went all in 24-7 on oh my god did Joe Paterno fail to perform his moral duty when it came to this allegation against uh, Jerry Sandusky and that became the narrative and uh, Penn State panicked and Penn State uh, in that panic uh, fired everybody instead of defending their people and once they fired everybody including the legendary Joe Paterno It's effectively a guilty plea, right? And and not only is it a guilty plea that tells everybody this story is true, but even worse than that, it invests the university. This is so key to understanding how this happened. Penn State University became invested in the idea that their football program and their administrators were to blame for this because if it turns out somehow Sandusky is innocent, or even if Paterno is innocent, they're all going to look like jackasses for all time for having panicked and fired the great Joe Paterno before his last home football game and getting rid of a highly esteemed president Graham Spanier. So now they want. This is so important for me to understand. It, it's so counterintuitive. Penn State wants this story to be true, and so <laughs> so the leaders the leaders at Penn State become deeply invested. So much so. They effectively put over a $100 million on the table for accusers of Jerry Sandusky. Well, when you put over $100 million on the table in, in white trash middle Pennsylvania, guess what's going to happen? People are going to come forward with, with stories, <laughs> especially when they've already heard the story in the news media. They know exactly what to copy. This, this isn't rocket science. You know, every every plaintiff lawyer in the state knows that Fort Knox is wide open, and that uh, you know there's going to be free money here, and that's what happened, and um, and so this starts a domino effect, and with Penn State invested in in their own guilt, I think that everyone in the media and almost all the public becomes incapable of being able to properly perceive what is happening. Like there was this free report by former FBI Director Louis Free that came out in the next year in the summer of 2012, perfectly timed. I mean, this was – I mean, I'm not a conspiracy guy at all. I'm an ardent anti-conspiracy person. But, I mean, if there was a conspiracy in this case, it was to make sure that Jerry Sandusky was, was tried and convicted in record time to give Louis Free enough time to come forward and put out his free report so that the NCAA could act in time for the next football season to start because there was even talk that Penn State wouldn't even be able to play football that next year. And and all of this uh, was incredibly obviously contrived. And the free report gave the Penn State Board of Trustees exactly what they wanted. They paid him millions of dollars to find their university guilty, which, again, to most people, they can't understand. Wait, what? You need to understand this is not a a private business this is a state run academic institution using other people's money to make themselves look and feel good and they were getting enormous praise in the media the new york times was patting them on the back for doing the right thing and embracing their own guilt and and trying to do right by the victims and and of course none of the those people in charge are, are to blame because they already got rid of the people that were supposedly to blame, Paterno and Spanier, and the two administrators, and and of course Sandusky was going to jail. So this was all this is all clean for them. When in fact it was it was the Penn State leadership, the Penn State Board of Trustees, that convicted innocent people uh, in a panel and without any logical uh, thought process or any facts or evidence to back it up. And I think I've proven that in our podcast with the benefit of hindsight.
0: So let's dive into this just a touch more because I I don't want to gloss over this how big Paterno was in State College. Like, he donated the library and a whole bunch of other things. Like, if there was a – I don't know how to describe describe him in State College, but, I mean, the cult figure of cult figures of any town, like Elvis in Memphis, right? Like, we're talking that kind of level of thing.
1: Right, and that was used against him in this – in this quote unquote scandal because especially for people outside of state college and especially for the news media and sports media, it was incredibly easy to buy in to this narrative that Joe ran the town or Joe ran the school and Joe ran the football program with an iron fist. And Joe, if he said let's ignore the pedophile because I don't want the football program to have negative publicity, that people would actually go along with that, which is just, Absurd! It's ludicrous! It's absurd that Joe would ever go along with it. It's against sixty-one years of evidence of his career, who he was. I mean, which was one of the most amazing elements of the media narrative. This guy, for sixty-one years, swam with sharks in college football, and uh, you know never did anything wrong, and was still incredibly successful. And yet, when it came down to it, he got zero benefit of the doubt. Zero. Even, I mean, it was just presumed, that oh, oh, so he fooled us for 60 years. I mean, come on. No, how, how about how about we at least wait to find out what the hell happened here? Um, and none of that happened, and I think it was partially because he was so old, 84 years old, that he was unable to defend himself. He had a very, very, very poor uh, defender in his son and lawyer, Scott Paterno, who really, crap to bed on this situation, and I think is one of the top people to blame in this entire fiasco. We go into that in great detail in, the, in our podcast with the benefit of hindsight. But let me let me try to dispel this this myth of Joe Paterno as cult leader and and also explain how important that myth was into the media and the public buying this dark fairy tale. You know, this story breaks pretty much right after the Catholic Church scandal had been a huge, huge deal in Pennsylvania. And I really think that's what set everybody up to buying uh, a myth and to being duped. Because following the Catholic Church scandal, when this story comes down the pike, everybody, especially in the media, is saying to themselves, oh, wait a minute. We've seen this movie before. This is just like the Catholic Church. Joe Paterno is the Pope, the administrators of the cardinals and bishops covering this all up. Jerry Sandusky is the pedophile priest, the Penn State football fans are the Catholic parishioners looking the other way to to en- enable their the cherished institution of college football to be able to survive and prosper. It's all garbage. I mean it's, I understand why people bought it, but it's it's garbage. None of that it fails at every Possible level. And of course, the most important level is Jerry Sandusky was not a pedophile priest. And in fact, you know, let let me use that example of the pedophile priest. You know, there's so many differences between the Catholic Church scandal and the Penn State alleged scandal. But, you know, at the essence of the Catholic Church scandal is the idea that uh, a priest, because he is a messenger from God or representative of God and has, you know, robes and and, you know, incense and does mass, you know, he's got, he, he is imbued with powers, right? And that a young impressionable boy, mostly boys that were either gay or showed signs of being gay. That's a big, big difference because none of the accusers in this case were gay at all, which I think really matters. Although it's, it's, um, it's not politically correct to say it, but I can explain why if you want me to later. But the point of this is that. Catholic priests got away with this because they had power or the perception of power. Well, the key accusers in this case never knew Jerry Sandusky as an assistant football coach at Penn State. (laughs) Victim number one, Aaron Fisher, who was the only accuser for over two years of this investigation, was five or six years old the last time Jerry Sandusky was an assistant football coach at Penn State. By the time Aaron Fisher knew him, many years later, as an almost teenage boy, Jerry Sandusky was no longer an esteemed assistant to Joe Paterno. He was a has-been, goofy guy who didn't even drive a nice car, who ran a charity. That's not the guy who has the all powerful position that somehow kids are going to put up with sexual abuse. Heterosexual boys that are basically teenagers are going to put up with sexual abuse and keep coming back to him without ever telling anybody about this. It's a ludicrous narrative with no evidence. And so um, there's, to me, the Catholic church story, if you really understand the Catholic church story, well, for most people it led them into buying this myth and being duped, if you really understand the Catholic church story, it actually disproves the entire Penn state scandal for reasons I just stated as well as many others.
0: So, okay, hold on. Shifting gears brought to you by evergreen podcast.com shifting gears brought to you by evergreen So talk to me about your time with Jerry Sandusky. <laughs> well, I mean, because um, he always, I, he always seems well, cause I've only ever seen him on these little clips of TV. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know the man, obviously, and I never had any. And matches. I didn't.
1: And I didn't. And I didn't know him either until I interviewed him. Like I said, twice for about three hours each. Talked to him on the phone uh, in two different short interviews. But I guess for a totality of about six and a half hours, I've I've interviewed him both on the record, not the record. Um, you know, I didn't know him at all before that. I had no sympathy for him at all. I I thought he was guilty the first time that I interviewed him when I went into the into the prison. Um, When I came out, I started to think, "Wait a minute, what the hell is going on here?" Because none of this makes any damn sense. Um, he is the first thing you need to know about Jerry Sandusky is that he is incredibly naive, incredibly naive, and he's also um, not very smart. I mean, it depends on how you define intelligence. I mean, he he writes beautiful letters. In fact, those beautiful letters he were used against him in the trial. They were wrongly characterized as as love letters to these these boys. That's not remotely accurate. Um, But, um, you know, he's a beautiful letter writer, but he's not a very smart guy. He's not a master strategist. In fact, I don't understand how he was ever a great defensive coordinator. He's a very slow talker, which explains the disaster of the Bob Costas interview. He contemplates everything you ask him. He often repeats the question as he did with Bob Costas with whom I've spoken by the way uh, extensively in the last 10 11 years um and um and I know that Bob has a, a lot of grave questions about what really happened here and here his interview is is really what most people cite as the reason why they think Jerry Sandusky is guilty the um you know he he he's very honest i think jerry is actually literally honest to a fault and I tried for over a year after that first interview to find him, find some way to disprove what he was saying or to catch him in a lie. And I couldn't do it. I could not catch Jerry Zanuski in any lie because I don't think he lies. Uh, however, the, the accusers in this case told multitudes of untruths. Um, and, um, you know, the media just ignored that. But Jerry never got a chance to really tell his story because the media panic causes Penn State to plead guilty. The Bob Costas disastrous interview ends any chance of him getting a fair hearing. And then he's put on trial seven months after this this media firestorm with no continuances. I mean, that's that's unheard of. He's facing 10, 10 counts, and he faces trial seven months after arrest. Um, in a media firestorm without a change of venue and without uh, any continuances, uh, absolutely unheard of. I mean, today, uh, I mean, if, if Jerry Sandusky was a real celebrity and had a lot of money and the, and there hadn't been this contrived timeline, that trial would have been three or four years after the arrest, <laughs> the way things normally work in our judicial system. But this thing was rushed through. It was an absolute farce, the trial was. And, um, you know, I, I feel bad for, for Jerry Sandusky. Um, he's going to die in prison almost certainly. Um, however, I actually think, and maybe I'm just rationalizing because I'm trying to come up with some way for this to make sense and not be a complete catastrophe. But I, I think that it's my theory that w- when Jerry's on his deathbed, he'll actually, this is, this will tell you a lot about Jerry. In my opinion, he will feel good in some way. That even though those who testified against him betrayed him enormously and destroyed his entire life's work and, 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 and had the last whatever it is, 10, 15, 20 years of his life be hell. But at least his relationship with these guys resulted in them having a lot of good things happen for them and their family because they all made millions of dollars. I really think that he'll, that part of him will, will think that, that that was a good thing that came out of him. And he does have a little bit of a a, of a Jesus complex. Uh, in fact, he called me Judas in one letter uh, after the first uh, Today Show interview, which kind of shocked me. And of course, that means if I'm Judas, then that means he's Jesus. Uh, he's very religious, which people don't understand. Religion did play a major role in many ways in this case. But Jerry Sandowski is not a pedophile. He doesn't even have the the physical capabilities of being a pedophile. He has no testosterone. He, his medical records indicated the key moments of this case. He had, he had, quote, virtually no testicular matter, so no testicles, which no accuser ever said anything about. So whether he was even physically capable of doing these things, there's no way – that the accusers would not ever mention that Jerry Sandusky has no balls. Um, uh, I, I actually, I, it is my opinion. I'm not a, remotely an expert in this. I think that Jerry Sandusky is not only not a pedophile. I think he's asexual. I don't think Jerry Sandusky has a sexual bone in his body. He's basically your grandmother for all intents and purposes. Uh, but he is not, he's not a pedophile. No, there, no, there's no possible way.
0: So Okay, let's bridge the gap back, though, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. You did the first interview. You went in thinking what was right was was wrong, or what was wrong was right. I don't know. You know what I'm saying now, right? And then- Well, just, just to
1: be clear, just to be clear, I thought that, here's what I thought. I thought at that time, Joe Paterno had been railroaded. The administrators probably were railroaded. There was probably no cover-up. I wanted to try to prove that there was no cover-up using Jerry Sandusky's testimony. I was open to some of the accusations being exaggerated or maybe even false, but that in general, I thought Jerry must be a pedophile. There's just no way that all this could happen without there being some fire with all this smoke. And then I changed my mind pretty significantly after that interview.
0: Okay. So you did the first interview and then you got, you said you mentioned you got a letter after the one, how many letters did you get between the, the first interview and the second interview?
1: Well, Jerry only writes at Christmas now, but back in back in the day, <laughs> I, I, um, I probably have dozens of letters from Jerry Sandowski. Um, I just remember the Judas one because obviously that was, well, yeah, that was I, big. I, I understand I mean, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, but also because it happened right after that first Matt Lauer today show interview. And I, I didn't really think I deserved it. I mean, I, I, Lauer asked me three times, And I tried to avoid answering it because I was not certain that I was no longer certain in his guilt. And I think Lauer kind of sensed that I was no longer certain about his guilt and and really tried to nail me down on that. So the third time, after trying to avoid the question, I said, you know, that I I think I said something along the lines of that he's probably guilty of most, uh, if not all, of what he was accused of, but that he didn't get a fair trial which which frankly was <laughs> a stronger defense of him at the time than anybody else had ever given on television um but that Jerry was not uh, particularly thrilled with that um I don't know why he would have expected anything different but he's very naive I mean he's a very naive person but um but again he's he's not guilty of these crimes
0: so what was the aha moment because we were, you, you were lawful in there what was the moment that kind of well, one hundred percent. Okay, where we are
1: today. It happened incrementally. Um, I, I was I, I wasn't totally convinced after the first interview because I'm thinking at that time, is it possible that he is just a master manipulator? Right. I, I really think that part of of this perfect storm is that because Jerry was this very successful defensive coordinator, the people imbued him with almost magic powers. In fact, we have audio which we play in. In the, with the benefit of hindsight, of the main victim's lawyer in this case, a scumbag by the name of Andrew Schumann, who tells our fake accuser in a sting operation that he believes that Jerry's Jerry used his great powers as a defensive coordinator to orchestrate this entire operation. And we're just like, this is ridiculous if you know Jerry Zinuski. But even I fell prey to that because I was still thinking, all right, is he a genius somehow? Is he is he manipulating me? And I, it took an extraordinary reexamination of the case for me to realize no. Um, number one, um, he's naive and he's not that bright. And here's how I know. But, but people always say, "Well, John, how do you know you weren't manipulated?" Because because here's why. Because the Jerry Sandusky I found was exactly the same when I was opposing him. In other words, still believing that he was guilty and, and, you know, assuming that and then going on the Today Show and saying that was the exact same guy as when I then jumped to the other side of the fence and realized that he was innocent. And in fact, getting closer to him, once I effectively became part of Team Sandusky, I realized, oh, my gosh, this guy is a bonehead. <laughs> he's, he's a moron in many ways uh and and the furthest thing from a strategic genius so that was why i knew i wasn't being duped or manipulated but as far as if, if i if i had to say there was an, a, a moment when i finally got to a hundred percent it was in the second interview that i did with Dottie sandusky his wife who i would later go on to do with a second today show interview with matt lauer where lauer i got lauer to come to Dottie Sandusky's house in, in State College, which was a miracle, although it didn't work out very well. But um, during that interview, I asked both of them. I said, "Both three of us are in a room. Jerry Sandusky is behind a screen. He's in chains. He can't even scratch his nose um, in his orange jumpsuit. And I say, well, can you guys tell me when was the first moment that you started to think this might not turn out okay for you? Now, that was an important question to me, because this saga had been going on at this point for years. I mean, it was over three years from the time that the investigation began to the time that the the convictions happened, right? So that's a long period of time. If you're guilty, if you're guilty... (laughs) <laughs> there's a, a thousand things that you're going to go, "Uh-oh, we're in trouble here," right? However, if you're innocent and you're believing that, you know, Jesus or God is going to save you, there's really only one answer to give. And Jerry went first, and with tears streaming down his eyes, in great detail, he articulated his emotions and his thoughts during the reading of The trial verdicts. That was the first moment that he thought, you know what? Boy, I could be in trouble here. And then I turned to Dottie, and with even more tears running down her cheeks, with even greater detail, she articulated the exact same moment of the reading of the verdicts. And then I got out of prison, and the first thing I did was I called – Jerry's criminal defense attorney at the time and during the trial, Joe Amendola, and I, and who, who, you know, I had been in close contact with, but he had no idea what I was going to ask, what I wasn't going to ask. And and really, I don't even think we had been in that close of contact before that second interview. I'm not even sure he knew we were doing the second interview, but I, I call him up and I say, Joe, I just asked Jerry and Dottie when was the first moment that they thought this might not turn out. Okay. What do you think they said? And Joe paused for about a second, second and a half and he says was it the reading of the verdict? And I go there we go. They're innocent because there's there's absolutely no consciousness of guilt. And again, people need to understand this is, this is after an extensive investigation where I, I have I've completely debunked all of the alleged evidence against him. So it's not like I'm I'm taking these, you know this act uh, and, and I'm ignoring uh, you know, this mountain of evidence. There is no mountain of evidence. There's nothing where there should be lots of evidence. And, um, and so at that moment, I became 100% convinced, and I'm, 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 I've been 100% convinced ever since. And by the way, since that moment, I've probably learned a thousand things that, that also uh, further convinced me that Jerry Sandusky is obviously innocent.
0: So I've got a long question because it just came to me. So you're going to have to deal with my randomness at this point. Um, okay. Did you talk to Joe or to Jerry about Joe and his relationship towards the end there? Because like you said, there was a what 15, 20 year period where he wasn't his defensive coordinator anymore. Did they have any relationship at all?
1: Well, um, to be clear, they, Jerry Sandusky retired in 1999. And so, um, and gets, oh. depends on what, 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 where you're marking time. But when, at the time of the arrest, by the time of the arrest, it had been basically 11 years.
0: Okay, sorry, since, uh, I since, somewhere in there,
1: <laughs> right? And no, that's no, close. That's close. And so, and during that 11 year period, I think you you make an important point. Um Jerry was not close to Joe Paterno. In fact, I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned this because I forgot to reference it in in my first interview with Jerry Sandusky. I would say that. Away from the factual stuff, because the factual stuff, I was still hazy as to, okay, what's the truth here? But but I'm big into people's motivations and if they say things that don't make any sense with a particular narrative. And one of the most powerful things in that first interview that Jerry said, and it might have put me into the 51% category, was it was clear to me that Jerry Zandusky had – at least some level of disdain for Joe Paterno. And I thought that was incredibly odd. It was so opposite of what I expected. And as I thought about it, I said, wait a minute. If Jerry Sandusky was guilty, right? Pedophilia is effectively an illness. He would feel an enormous amount of guilt, not just for his own acts, but for what he did to Joe Paterno. I mean, he single-handedly destroyed Joe Paterno's entire career and life, and Joe Paterno died two months after Jerry Sandusky's arrest. So in a world where Jerry is guilty, him having any level of disdain for Joe makes no sense. But in a world where Jerry is innocent, it makes perfect sense, not just because they were never very close and Joe was a pain in the ass, to Jerry um, but also because it was Joe Paterno's testimony that helped inadvertently put Jerry Sandusky in prison for the rest of his life for for him backing up Mike McQuery for a story that Jerry knew was not true so frankly it's absolutely amazing that Jerry didn't have more to stay for Joe Paterno <laughs> and i think it's and it shows you know kind of the person that Jerry Sandusky is but I'm actually really glad you mentioned that because that was that might have been the first real big aha uh-huh moment for me in my evolution to Jerry clearly being innocent. There's no way to square that circle, um, you know, under what we are led to believe about this case. If Jerry was guilty, he would have a very different view of Joe Paterno as well as the other administrators.
0: That's I. i was just fascinated because, like you said, eleven years. Uh, for some reason, I thought it was he retired earlier than that. But either way, eleven years. That's quite a run of different people, and you know, life goes on. Well, by the way,
1: you've you've inadvertently hit on another really important point. That's what I'm here for. That el- <laughs> that, that, that no, this is important. That eleven year period, okay, is so critical to what happens here because, in in my view. Over that 11 years where Jerry is in the periphery of, of their lives, but not directly in their lives. So they're not they're – they, people are forgetting who Jerry really was. They're effectively forgetting that he was not a pedophile. They're forgetting that he was a goofball with boundary issues. They're forgetting that he was this incredible saint. And so they, they also think, because he's out of sight, out of mind for most of the last 11 years – Maybe he's been up to really bad stuff. And, and, and that 11-year period plays such an important role. If, they, if these allegations had occurred, let's say in 2000 or 2001, just after Jerry left the Penn State coaching staff, there would have been a much stronger response from those in the Penn State football community going, what the hell are you talking about? That's not who Jerry is. Jerry is just a goofball. But over 11 years, those memories fade, those relationships fade, and everyone's reactions were very different, especially in that moral panic.
0: And I don't think, I, I guess it's hard to, for people to come out and say they're a of a pedophile. Put it in blank.
1: That's a huge, <laughs> yeah. huge, 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 huge issue. I mean, hell, Mark Pendergrass. Uh, you know well respected author who wrote a book called the uh, You know the Most Hated Man in America, which outlines the case of Jerry Sandusky's innocence. even he won't say point blank publicly that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, even though he knows Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Graham Spanier, the former president of Penn State, he just wrote a book where if you read it, it's clear that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. He knows Jerry Sandusky is innocent. I've spoken to him about this dozens of times. He won't say publicly that Jerry Sandusky is innocent because it goes against, you know, the liberal woke religion to, to call accusers liars, which is effectively what you have to do. So you not only have to defend a a supposed pedophile, but you have to call these sanctified accusers liars. Um, I guess I have the the stupidity of the mentality to do that, but not too many other people do. Um, uh, Although that number, you know, has grown over the, over the years. And so that is a huge part of this. There were absolutely former Penn State players and former Penn State coaches who at the immediate aftermath of the arrest wanted to strongly defend Jerry Sandusky. And, you know, this is probably an oversimplification, but it is my understanding that they were talked off that ledge mostly by their wives, that their wives felt like, you know, this was not the right fight, this was was too dangerous, or they – had a funny feeling about Jerry. Of course, they didn't know Jerry the way that the men did. They didn't see, you know, you, to me, you have to have been in a college football locker room and understood, by the way, that these showers are not private showers. They're massive, they're open, they're semi-public. This is not the place you would rape a boy if you know that's what you wanted to do. Uh, you would do that at Jerry's home, which he never, ever, ever, ever even is accused of having done. He stupidly thought that this was a safe place to to hang out with kids that he thought of as their as his own sons. These were his own sons. He had no biological children. His second-mile kids were his sons. And the boy that was in the shower, the 13-and-a-half-year-old boy that was in the shower in the Mike McQuarrie episode, who has said time and time again through his words and actions that nothing ever happened that night or any other time with Jerry Sandusky, was in fact a surrogate son of Jerry Sandusky. So... Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought that up because that's an important part of this whole equation.
0: So I want to give you the opportunity because you've mentioned the podcast several times now and you've got a couple (laughs) of documentaries and books. I know they're all linked on the site, but give the site and, uh, you know, give me that hard sell
1: right now before we run out of time. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, uh, this is the greatest story never properly told. In, in the modern history uh, of America and American media, American true crime stories. Once you get hooked, you're, you're never going to let go. At least that seems to be the, the way most people respond to it. You can check out the bite. My recommendation is to check out the podcast, which is with the benefit of hindsight, it's, you know, wherever you normally get your podcasts. Um, the, the website is framingpaterno.com that you can find all the, the resource material there, including the inner, the raw interviews, which is an extraordinary thing we've done. We put the raw interviews that we did for this, this podcast unedited. So, you know, you can't claim that we're trying to manipulate anybody by editing. And there's some extraordinary interviews on there at framingpaterno.com. And, and also if you want to, just a very short, short primer for this story on YouTube, I, I did a documentary film, a mini movie, if you will called the framing of Joe Paterno which was done back when I still thought that Jerry Sandusky was guilty and even that mini documentary is far more truthful even though I I only had a portion of the truth at that time it's far more truthful than anything you've gotten from the mainstream news media over the last 11 or uh, 12 years
0: so i've got a bunch of i don't want to say rapid fire questions but we're you know running up against it but so just keep that in mind so are you still looking into this or are you still i mean where are you at with it today
1: well, I mean, once I did the the podcast with Liz Abbibev and our producer Mike Agavino, there there was not much else for me to do um, I mean I still if something happens, I'll still post about it. I mean it, it, you know occasionally things still happen that are relevant to the case. There are still people who send me things that are interesting about the accusers. I mean frankly, the accusers and the accusers' families if you just go through their Facebook pages, it basically destroys the entire case for the, I mean, they, they're really kind of brazen about the stuff that they'll post on there. They're all big Penn state football fans to this day, which is kind of crazy. If you think about it um, and, and there are all sorts of other things that don't make any sense. I, I will say though, that two things have really uh, dampened my passion for the case uh one was that i thought that i had finally convinced jerry sandusky to abandon his state appeals and to go into federal court where i think he actually has a chance because in state court he has to go up against an entire state that's invested in his his guilt and and judges that are are up for election in Pennsylvania and and there's just no way to there's no way to win you're not going to get a fair hearing there but unfortunately jerry sandusky is afraid of federal court cuz you only get one bite at that apple And if you miss, you're done. It's over. And I think he's terrified of what would happen to him in prison life if he had nothing to occupy his time or give him hope. So he keeps going back to state court. And, you know, we thought, like I said, I thought we had finally convinced him to go to federal court. He had a federal uh, appeal attorney that I thought was really good. I've spoken to several times, but now he's back in the state court. And so that's, that's where it's going to end. I mean, he's just going to keep going back to state court. Jerry doesn't have the guts to to take the one shot. Uh, I don't know how much longer he's going to have to live. His his sons keep saying he's going to live till a (laughs) hundred, which I'm not sure is a good thing or a bad thing, but um, so that really depressed my passion. And then the second thing that happened was that NFL uh, great and Penn state great uh, Franco Harris passed away just before the, the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, just um, you know, right, right before Christmas of last year, Franco and I became very close during this entire saga. I, I considered him to be one of the few heroes of this case. I would not have continued on this case for as long as I did without Franco Harris. And now that he's gone, it, you know, it's kind of like ripping your heart out. Also, not only do I have no expectation at all that, that any good will ever come of this. I guess there's still a possibility that Penn state does right by Joe Paterno, but even that victory is going to ring hollow without Franco there. Right. I mean, that that would have been what would have been my motivating factor would be to see, you know, Franco be able to take that victory lap and to be able to share that with him. When, 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 and if, but uh, Penn state finally does right by, by Joe Paterno, which ironically I think is possible because of the whole NIL Controversy. I think that the people behind the NIL money for Penn State are all Paterno fans, and so they actually now have some leverage over Penn State with a new administration, a new athletic director, a new president, where there could actually be some some progress there. But without Franco around anymore, I'm kind of like, what difference does it make? So basically, I now look at it as I've wasted 10, 11 years of my life, destroyed what was left of my career for no reason. Um, yeah, I guess there's the historical record of what happened. And there are thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. I'd like to think it's tens of thousands. Most people think it's tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of people who have had their their minds changed about this. So I guess there's some, I guess, benefit uh, for that. But if you had told me how this was all going to turn out uh, 11, 12 years ago, I never would have gotten involved with this. It was the biggest mistake of my life. Greatest work of my life by far but also the biggest mistake in my life, which I think tells you an awful lot about the world in which we now live.
0: Sure does. Okay, so I've got a Franco Harris story for you. I'm going to skip. i got one more question for you, but I'm going to tell you this Franco Harris story. Uh, years ago, I was in Pittsburgh at a Pirates game after the game. I was walking down the street. I'm like, hey, that's Franco Harris. But he was on the phone, cell phone, right? So I waited, and I walked over to him, and I said, hey, Franco, will you sign my ball? Right? And he looks at me, and he says, why would I do that? It's, you're just going to put this on eBay. You're going to sell. I said, Franco, I'm not selling your autograph, man. Look at this ball. See this guy right here? Right here? This is the bullpen catcher. I'm just here collecting autographs. I'm going to keep this thing forever. Okay, if I see it on, our, if I see it on eBay, I'm going to come kick your ass. And I, started, <laughs> <laughs> and I started laughing. And I'm like, well, you, please do. <laughs>
1: So well, I, it doesn't sound like Franco to me, but I'll take your word for it. I, well, um,
0: I mean, dark in the middle of the night, you know, after a Pirates game, could okay. come probably in a moment, you know. Well, I'm sure he gets set up for right. all the time. So,
1: well, uh, to me, I, I, I've never, I've, I've met my fair share of celebrities, and I've <laughs> never, I've never been anyone who used their their power of celebrity for good uh, for others more than Franco Harris. I mean, Franco Harris. I mean, he was imperfect. He and I would disagree on a lot of things. In fact, you know, this before he he died, we probably had one of our biggest disagreements. And I'm thankful that at least we were able to get through that, because um, that would really would have bothered me if he had died and, and we hadn't hadn't uh, you know come to a, an agreement on that. But um, he was a great man, a truly great man, and I miss him dearly and think about him almost every day.
0: So I've got a minute left, and I've got this last question that's burning in the hole in my pocket. What's okay, your, what's your favorite breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's the last question I ask around uh, here, and it's always good because I we've was, been asking it for about a, eight months now. We have not got the same answer twice yet, so no pressure.
1: Really? Yeah. Well, I'm 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 pretty simple. Um, uh, if I, if uh, on my birthday, my wife usually makes me scrambled eggs, um, you know, toast, bacon. Uh, and tea and, you know, if there's some sort of pastry, then maybe that's involved, but pretty pretty simple stuff.
0: Well, John, I appreciate the time. Like I said, we're going to send people over to the, your podcast and listen to it. I appreciate this tonight, and thank you so much. Thank you. So there we go. So we learned a little bit more tonight about... It's how- the Mallard Report Yeah, the I want to thank you for joining us it's been a good show tonight I hope you enjoyed it take a few moments, subscribe, share all the fun stuff, you know how to do it I don't have to tell you just uh, be ready for next week it'll be sooner than you think us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough. I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on <laughs> a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, 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 I've never done it. <laughs> no, right.